the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, seeking Our Lady's intercession, let us pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. So I preach a lot of spiritual and theological and moral homilies. So today it's going to be very practical. So I've got a whole list of common mass questions that people have. Why do we do this? Why do we do that? And I thought I'm just going to go through it uh, and answer these questions. But the first thing I would encourage you to consider in this regard, as Catholics and as the body of Christ, uh, a body should always act in unison or in unity with itself, right? If, if you have you know, the right side of the body wanting to go right and the left side of the body wanting to go left, you're going to have a problem, right? It needs to act in unison. So when the church designs the liturgy in which our traditions maintain is that ultimately the things that we should be doing should be in conformity with tradition and everyone else. So just remember, it's not appropriate to take our own license in how we prefer to be devoted. You can do that at home on your own. Your preferences on your ho at home on your own, no problem. But here, where Christ wants us, the church wants us to uh, perform the actions of the Mass, say the words of the Mass, in unity with one another. And so that's why we have these traditions and some of these very strict rules. Now, some aren't too strict, but I'm going to go through them. And the first one is, is, is pretty classic. So when you enter the church, do you genuflect at the back of the church or at the pew? Why? What needs should you kneel with or genuflect with, right, the right or the left? So sometimes people have these questions. So because I'll see a lot of people, they come into the, the sanctuary space here from those doors, and they genuflect right away, and then they just go and find a seat, you know, a pew to sit in. And then you have others who don't genuflect when they come in the doors. They walk up, they genuflect before they go into the pew, and then they sit down or kneel. So the tradition has always been that if you're coming into the church, don't genuflect at the door. It's just not practical. People may be coming in behind you, right? You just kind of, you know, congest that area. So what you do is you continue to process into the church until you find the pew or place you want to be. Then you genuflect and sit down, kneel down, whatever you're planning on doing. If you're going to leave the sanctuary at the end of mass, or let's say you have to get up and use the bathroom, again, you genuflect at the pew, and then you can go out. Now, if you're not planning on sitting in a pew, it is appropriate to genuflect when you cross in front of the center of the church because that's where the tabernacle is. So the idea is sometimes I'm going from that side of the church to the other and I have no intention to sit down in a pew. I'm just trying to get over to the electronics, and, but I'll genuflect in the back. Why? Because I'm crossing in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Now, when you're coming up to communion, you know, should you genuflect when you're coming up to communion when you leave your pew? No, because you're coming forward to ideally kneel at the communion rail. And then kneeling at that moment is your sign of reverence. So you don't have to overcomplicate these signs of reverence. Now, why is the right knee the traditional knee on which we genuflect? Why is it the right knee? So as the church's influence in the world grew from 1,700 years ago, it began to affect civil society as well. And this tradition developed that when you were in the presence of the king or the queen, you would also genuflect in respect to their authority, which comes from God. But 
you had to make a distinction between whether you're genuflecting to God or to a human instrument of God. And so the left knee was always reserved to humans and the right knee was always reserved to God. So that's where the tradition comes from. Now, what if you have a bad right knee? Then use your left. It's okay. Nobody cares, right? It, just because it's a tradition and we, if possible, should do it, doesn't mean you have to do it. You have to genuflect, right? Presuming that you have the ability to do so. Now, when we were in seminary, a lot of us uh, would like to study how all of the different seminarians would genuflect, because there were a lot of weird styles of genuflection, right? And I'm not saying there isn't, you know, room for various interpretations. The, the rule is, presuming your body is healthy enough, your knee should touch the floor, okay? So we always loved those seminarians. We'd get to church early and just watch them, right? So my favorite is the, it looks like a trip. That, that's not really much of a genuflection. Or honestly, my, my absolute favorite was the horse genuflection. I will show you what this looks like. If you've ever seen a horse go down on one knee, that's what it looks like. <laughs> so, so there's all these different forms of genuflection. And, and look, there's not like a hard, fast, strict rule, except your knee should touch the ground. If you can, it should be your right knee. Don't worry if it's not. But what if you you got two bad knees and you can't genuflect at all? Then bow, right? There's actually a stage of signs of reverence. If you're unable to do the most reverent, then you just work your way up. But there are three forms of bows. Right? And even in the, the Missal, this book I use, it actually tells me at different times of the Mass when I genuflect, when I bow profoundly, when I do a half bow, and when I do a head nod. So let's say I got bad knees. So if I can, I should do what's called a profound bow. That is a bow at the waist. So I'm, I'm kind of folding myself in half. But let's say I've got bad knees and a bad lower back. Okay, Try a half bow. You know, just, just go as far as you can without hurting yourself. But let's say you can't even do that. Right? You've you're, you got a walker. There's very little movement. You know, So a head bow, right? Just bow your head. Let's say you can't even do that. Just wink at our Lord, right? Just give him some sign of respect and reverence, you know, whatever you can do. My point is th there are traditions and rules that we sh need to follow. But if you can't do it, there's no sin. You just do what you can. And it's the same with receiving on the knees. Ideally, the tradition, kneeling to receive communion, is the preferred method of the church. But again, if you can't kneel, then stand reverently, right? That's perfectly fine. That's okay. Now, what do you do if you can't kneel in the pew during the times we're supposed to be kneeling, like during the Eucharistic prayer and the consecration? If you can't kneel, then you should stand. I don't care, there, care whether the people beside you, behind you can't see or not. It's not about them. It's about the Lord. If you can't kneel at that time, you should be standing. Now, what if you can't stand? Then just sit reverently, right? Don't lay back and get all comfortable in the pew, right? Just sit up as reverently as you can. Ideally, yes, we have these traditions and these recommendations by the church, but if you can't do it, you can't do it. The Lord understands. You know, years ago, we had this parishioner, he's, he's since passed, and a little old man, and, you know, he could hardly walk. He had his cane, and he was just really slowly moving, and I have no idea how he got up and down, but every time he would come to communion, it'd take him like a full minute and a half to kneel down, and his whole body's shaking. And I would say to him, you don't have to kneel. He goes, it's for Jesus. Now, he didn't have to kneel, but you, you saw he wanted, even if it was difficult for him. And there, there's a beauty and a goodness in that. And you see that in your own lives when, when a spouse or a parent or a sibling does something out of love for you that, that isn't easy for them. So, again, don't break your back or your knees, but there's a reason we have these traditions. So, okay, the next one's fun. If you are late to Mass, 
or leave early, have you fulfilled your obligation? So I'm going to give you the legal answer first. So just according to the laws of the church, then I'm going to give you a spiritual interpretation, right? So the letter of the law is this. You have a moral obligation to go to Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. What that means is you have to get to Mass before the Gospel is proclaimed, and you ideally can't leave until after the final blessing. Now that is technically attending Mass. However, you can evenly, even legally stretch it a little bit. As long as you stay for the consecration and supposed, you know, if you're going to receive Holy Communion, technically you could sneak out right after Communion. Again, technically. Legally. You have technically fulfilled your obligation. Now, you did a terrible job at it, but you, you legally fulfilled your obligation. You have to be there before the gospel is proclaimed. If you miss the gospel, you missed mass, and you have to go to another one if you can. So if you miss the gospel, you've missed mass. And you have to say throughout, basically, when the priest receives communion, whether you're going to receive or not, because that's when the liturgy of the Eucharist officially ends, even though mass hasn't ended. So that's the legal rule. Now, a couple of points. Obviously, the reason the church gives us several readings and the introductory rite where we do the penitential rite and the gloria is because those are important and necessary aspects of preparing our mind and heart for worship and ideally, if possible, to receive Holy Communion. I shouldn't just follow the legal rules when the church intentionally gives me more to help me. Now, but sometimes something happens, there's an accident, car won't start in the morning, run out of gas, whatever it is. Don't, don't sweat the small stuff. You make it before the gospel, you're good. Now, in regards to leaving early, uh, I know a lot of my brother priests will put signs in the back during mass uh, so that when people try to sneak out during communion, it says, just remember Judas left first also. I'm just saying, you know, that's what the Bible says. So, um, yes, I'll, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, now, can you receive communion if you're late to mass? <coughs> this is what you have to realize. Our moral obligation, according to the church in Christ, is to uh, attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. There is no moral obligation to receive communion. It doesn't exist. I, I have to attend Mass because I have to worship God the way that Christ has taught us. But let's say I'm not worthy to receive communion. Well, you still have to come. You still have an obligation. Just get to confession and receive communion as soon as you can after that. But let's say you get late to Mass. You know, it's not like some grave sin. You're negligent or you, you, were, you just didn't care. And you did your best to prepare yourself that morning. Well, yes, you didn't make mass, but you can receive communion if you're properly disposed and in the state of grace. I mean, you could sh show up literally during the distribution of Holy Communion, but if you are properly disposed in your mind and heart and your soul is in the state of grace, come up and receive. There's nothing wrong with that. Church has no problem with that. So you have to realize our obligation to attend Mass and the good of receiving communion are distinct things. Yes, they're related. Yes, one is a part of the other, but the obligation is to attend Mass. That's the moral obligation. So should you go to confession if you have missed Mass? I mean, just go to confession all the time. You know me. I, pre I preach about this. Just go to confession. I don't, you know, once a month minimum. That's, that's what the saints recommend. Um, more often if you need it. You know, once a week, once every two weeks, whatever. But let's say it's a Sunday. Things outside of my control happen. I try to get to 9 a.m. Mass here and I, I missed the gospel. Well, I missed mass. Now, there's a mass at noon in Spanish here. There are other masses later on the rest of the day in other parishes. You have to drive a little further. And you could say, well, I had other plans. Yeah, who cares? You also had plans about getting to mass on time. That didn't work out. So if you miss mass, 
because you didn't want to affect the, the other parts of your day when you could have gotten to a mass, then that's a sin. You, you intentionally miss mass at that point, which is more important. You go out to lunch with your friends or family or that you attend mass, right? So you have to be willing to remove the rest of your plans because this is the Lord's day. It's not your day. It's the Lord's day. And it has to be about him. And that's something you have to consider. But let's say you were trying to get at the f- get to the 5 p.m. mass at St. Al's, but you got there late and you missed it, and there's no later mass. Well, maybe that was just really bad planning, and it's a venial sin. Do better next time. But you didn't have an option. You, you got there too late. There's no other mass to attend on Sunday. Confess it anyway. It's not necessarily mortal. But if you find you have a habit of doing this, that can become far more grave. So just some ideas to ponder. So during the procession of the priest and the altar servers, should the people turn, face the priest, and bow when he passes? So you see a lot of people do this sometimes. It's an ancient practice or tradition, but it's more a personal piety than an official rule. There are no rules in the extraordinary form and the ordinary form of the Mass that's saying you have to do that. The idea is that the priest, who through the sacrament of holy orders, stands in the person of Christ, you're recognizing that Christ in the person of the priest is entering into the, the sanctuary. And so you're, you're showing that sign of reverence not to the, the priest, but to Christ himself. So that's why some people do that. Again, there's no rule. You don't have to do it. And trust me, if I see you doing it, it's not like it strokes my pride and I'm going to give you a lighter penance next time you go to confession, right? You know, it doesn't work that way. It's not about me, right? So I, I don't take it personally. Yeah, I'm not going to think better of you because you do it, or worse, because you don't. I don't care. The church doesn't care. I don't care. Why do you strike your breast during the penitential rite? So this is a this is a really good point. So has been ancient tradition that whenever someone is is expressing sorrow or remorse as a sign of their humility and penitence, they would strike their breast. It's like striking their heart. I'm so sorry for what I did to you. It's like a sign of mortification. So the church has always done this, and this is an essential part of the liturgy. You are supposed to be doing this, and we strike it three times now. As Roman Catholics, we don't strike it with a closed fist. A lot of people don't know this. When you strike your chest at the penitential rite, it should be open-handed. Why? Because the closed fist is a more violent expression. And this is supposed to be a symbol of your humility and penitence. You're not supposed to be like, you know, you know, hurting yourself or anything, right? It's, it's an external sign to reflect what's in our mind and heart. That's why we always do it. That's why we're, we're supposed to do it. So it should be an open palm, right? And just, you know, my fault, my fault, my most grievous fault. So just each time. Again, we three because it's Trinitarian, so it's perfect. So that's why we do it. Before the gospel is read, the people say praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, and cross their head, their lips, and their heart, right? Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, and then make a little sign of the cross on your forehead, your lips, and your heart, okay? What is the prayer that we should say at that time or while making those signs of the cross? And should a normal sign of the cross be done after doing the three little ones, why or why not? The, that is part of the ritual. You are supposed to be making these three signs of the cross, forehead, lips, and mouth. And even though there's no official prayer, the theology or the intention behind it is, as we're preparing to hear the gospel of the Lord, we want the word of the Lord to be in our minds, on our lips, and in our hearts. So that's what I say to myself, or I pray silently every time I do that. That's where the tradition comes from, and that's why we should be doing it. And it's a beautiful tradition, right? Because I want these words, I want the Holy Gospel of Christ to enter into my mind so that I think of it all the time, to be on my lips so that I speak of it 
all the time and to be in my heart that I love it all the time. And that's where that tradition comes from. However, it is not church teaching or practice that you then make a full sign of the cross afterwards. So if you do that, please stop. Don't teach other people to do it. If you want to do that at home when you're praying, knock yourself out. Here at Mass, we follow the traditions and the rules, and we try to act as a, as a body, the way all of us are, are showing our unity by this conformity. So again, just three little signs of the cross, then fold your hands and listen. So if you want to hold open the, the lectionary there in the pew and read along, you can do that too. So the prayers of the faithful, are they not required? Obviously, I, I almost never do prayers of the faithful. They are totally optional. It is up to the celebrant whether he wants to do them or not. And I just rarely, if ever, do them. I do them for funerals, sometimes for weddings, you know, for special occasions and things. But the reason they're not required is, one, they're not part of the tradition. In, in the celebration of the Mass for 2,000 years, there was never this special moment, you know, after or after the homily, before the creed, in which, you know, we shared our own, you know, intentions. Why? Because the Mass is designed to pray for everything that we need. The words that I say, especially during the consecration, include all of the possible intentions that you have. And there is even a part built into the prayers in which you have a moment to just quietly offer those intentions to the Lord yourselves. So there's no reason to have these extra prayers of the faithful. So I there was never a tradition to do it. I see no purpose in doing it except in special occasions to help people, you know, especially at a funeral when there's a lot of strong emotion there. It can really help them receive extra grace and consolation. But it's just not necessary. It just extends the time of the Mass, and I already preached long enough. Do you really want me to extend any more time in the Mass? So there you go. They're not necessary. Why do you bow to the server if using incense? Should you make the sign of the cross when they incense the people? Okay, why do you, meaning, so, or I. So, um, so the ancient tradition about being incensed, and you'll see that after I incense the altar at the preparation of the gifts, I'll hand it back to the thurifer, and then he will incense me. So incense has always been a symbol of prayer. Why? Because when you burn it, it rises up to heaven. And it's sweet smelling, right? That's the special things we put in it, uh, because we want our prayers to be received sweetly by God. We want them to be pleasing to him, and things that smell nice are pleasing. That's where we have this tradition. So the idea is that this symbolic act of prayer is sanctifying me. So I want the incense, the smoke, to waft over me so that the holy prayers of the church would sanctify me and prepare me to offer the holy sacrifice. And it's the same for you. So the server comes down, he bows, and you bow. And that's just a sign of respect. It's just, a, it's a half bow, right? Nothing, nothing too profound, a half bow. And then he incenses you. Now notice when he incenses, incenses, incenses a priest or a bishop, he does it three times, but he does it twice, three times. So it's one, two, one, two, one, two. For the lady, sorry, you get once three times. You're just not as special. So you get one, one, one. But when I incense the blessed sacrament, let's say at adoration or benediction, three times, because it's the Lord. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. So there's all these little symbols, all these little details that we do that a lot of times Catholics don't even notice, but it's ancient tradition to recognize the hierarchical difference between uh, individuals in these celebrations. So again, it's just common to bow as a, as a little sign of respect in the moment, but the incense is meant to be the prayers of the church helping to lift us up and prepare us for this holy sacrifice and worship. Should you make the sign of the cross when they incense the people? No. Don't make the sign of the cross. 
basically beginning of mass, end of mass, and what I do at the homily is permitted at the beginning of the homily and at the end of the homily. That's about all you're allowed to do. Please don't be throwing in your own signs of the cross whenever you feel like it. You can do that at home, just don't do it at mass. What is the epiclesis and when does it happen and why do the bells ring? Okay, the epiclesis, it's a nice fancy traditional Latin word, which is the calling down of the Holy Spirit upon the gifts. So before I can consecrate, I must call down the Holy Spirit upon the bread and the wine. And then I say the words of consecration. So the epiclesis is just that moment in which the Holy Spirit is called down. And you'll always see the priest extend his hands over the bread and the wine. Whenever you see him do this, if you can see it, that's the epiclesis. Traditionally, an altar server will ring bells just one time, one ring. At that moment, basically that's telling you, because let's say you're not paying attention, <laughs> you know, something else is going on, you're like, oh, epiclesis. You know, you kind of turn your focus then back to the Lord. This is, this is it. Holy Spirit's coming. Jesus is about to be transubstantiated. So, you know, you're supposed to focus your attention. That's the only reason for the bells. Honestly, the tradition has always been people get distracted. Things are going on. It's just to remind you this moment is important. Pay attention. Now, the next moment for the ringing of the bells is after the consecration of the bread of the host when the priest elevates the consecrated host so that you can see our Lord consecrated and you don't see the consecration but you, you get to see our Lord again there are three rings and those three rings again are to remind you the bread was just consecrated focus and then when the chalice after the consecration of the precious blood is lifted up again three rings again it's it's to get your attention it's like the dinner bell you know the old triangles that you used to ring to get the kids in that's basically what it is it's getting your attention saying the blood was just consecrated and then the final ring of the bells is when the priest celebrant receives the precious blood he's received the body and he receives the precious blood after he receives the precious blood the reason the bell is rung one more time or the bells are rung one more time is because at that moment officially the liturgy of the eucharist has ended the communion rite in which you come forward is not part of the liturgy of the eucharist it happens after it it's a totally different part of the mass it just flows naturally of course but that bell is to say the consecration has ended, the Eucharistic rite is over. So that's where the, the four moments of ringing the bells come in. The epiclesis, the consecration of the body, the consecration of the blood, and then the consummation or the completion of the holy sacrifice. Again, interesting details. People are interested and care about this. Oh, uh, yeah, this next one is, is fun. Um, we debated a lot about this in seminary. When does the transubstantiation occur? So when, at what moment, does the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ? And the church doesn't know. She knows it happens sometime between the epiclesis and the consecration of the precious blood. But there's a disagreement in the church. There has been for 2,000 years about when is the moment. Well, it's not a moment. It's at the consecration. So from the calling down of the Holy Spirit to the words of consecration over the, the wine, right, become the precious blood, that is transubstantiation. That's as close as we can get, right? It, it happens there. So there's not a moment in which you can say, there, that it is. Th there was an interesting story, scary, but interesting. Um, years, years ago, I think it was in, in the Archdiocese of, of New York, or, um, but uh, there was an elderly priest, retired priest, who had dementia and was starting to lose his faculties. And uh, one day he was shopping for bread in, a, in a, one of those little bread delis. He, all they do is make bread. And he, and he stood there, and luckily there were a lot of Catholics there, and he consecrated the entire room. 
So um, <laughs> the bishop wasn't exactly sure what to do. Was it valid? Was it invalid? You know, I mean, you, you can't know. So, the <laughs> so they called the bishop. The bishop ran there, and he bought everything in the store. <laughs> Literally, he bought everything in the store, brought it to the, to the cathedral, and he had all the priests come in and help consume it. And he was like, I don't know if it's Jesus or not, right? It's, it's, it's tricky sometimes, right? So, yes, obviously that's not normal, but weird things happen. So why do we stand? This is a very important one. Why do we stand during the Our Father and then kneel again? Right, so for, for most of the Eucharistic prayer, we're kneeling out of reverence for our Lord because he's, he's consecrating and he's becoming present to us in the Blessed Sacrament. And so why do we suddenly stand up? What, what's the point? Why it doesn't seem to make sense. Oftentimes when maybe you're praying a rosary, you kneel when you say the Our Father. Why can't you kneel at Mass? Well, I don't remember the exact century. Within the first, I'd say, 400 years of the church, this issue came up where people, thinking it was more pious, began to stay kneeling during the Our Father at Mass. And the Pope, finding out about this, wrote an encyclical. The Pope at the time, again, I don't remember which one he was. And the encyclical says it is forbidden for Catholics during Mass to kneel during the Our Father. It's forbidden. You're not allowed to do it. And the reason is this, because we have been made children of God by Christ and in the sacraments. And as children, you stand before your parents. You stand because you share in their dignity. You share in their life. You kneel before your God, but you stand before your parents. Well, the Lord is both. He is our God, and so we kneel before him. But at certain moments, we stand because we are his children also. And since the prayer of the Our Father is the prayer of, a, of Jesus, the prayer of the Son of God, and we who celebrate or pray that prayer are sharing in his sonship. We are children of God. And so ever since then, it has been a law of the church that at mass you stand during the Our Father. And it's to express your sonship, your relationship to God as his child and not just his creature, his creation. So it's actually a strict church rule has been for 1700 years or so. So it's a, that's a very good question. Mm -hmm. okay. When going forward for communion, what is the proper protocol? Should we bow before we kneel? Should we bow when the priest comes in front of the individual? What are we supposed to be doing? So when you're getting up to come for communion, don't genuflect right when you leave the pew because you're going to come up and do some sign of reverence once you get to the front and line up at the communion rail. Ideally, you just come forward and kneel. That's your sign of reverence. If you want to have your head a little bowed, fine. But uh, I get a little frustrated by the people where I come up to them at Holy Communion, and they're like doing a profound bow at the communion rail, right? And, and they can't even see me, and it's just, please don't do that. <laughs> One, there's not a lot, ch lot of extra space up here. You know, s sometimes you infringe on, on my space. <laughs> so, you know, kneel. You can do a little head bow right before you say amen if you want. But the sign is kneeling. If you're doing that, if you're not, then stand reverently and give a little bow when I approach you with the blessed sacrament before you say amen. So those things are okay. And, and just a, another detail, a couple of things, and I've, I've preached on this in the past. So if you're receiving communion on the tongue, which is the church's preference, of course, because it's the most humble way to do it, please, two things, don't lunge at me. I, I know you love Jesus and you want to receive him, but please, I, not a lot of people do it. There's always that, you know, person like the body of Christ amen it's like they're a baby chick you know you know jumping at the mother right I'm just scared you're gonna bite my fingers so so please don't move your head forward at least w and please don't do this amen 
it, it's like a slot machine, or I have to put a quarter into you know, a gumball machine or something. I'm sorry, what? You wonder why I poke you, you know, with our Lord sometimes. Open your mouth, please. You know, I don't care whether you're embarrassed by your teeth or something. I'm the only one seeing it in the altar server, and they don't care. So, please, open your mouth and tilt your head back for God's sake. Literally, for God's sake, tilt your head back. Why? Open your mouth, put out your tongue. It's just much easier. Please, please. It makes my life so much better if you, if you do those things. Sorry, little side point, but important. So, again, stand reverently, do a little bow, whatever you can do to make a sign of reverence insofar as you are able. Okay, another thing, when kneeling during the communion rite, when is it proper to sit after communion? Right? What is, the, what is the protocol, tradition, teachings? Again, the ideal, what the church prefers, what you ideally should be doing, is you should be kneeling until the priest returns the blessed sacrament to the tabernacle and closes the doors. When you hear that clank of the tabernacle doors, then you can sit down. Or if you're standing, then you can sit down. So again, there's not a hard, fast rule. If, if your knees are hurting, your back is hurting, just sit down, sit reverently and pray, that's fine. But ideally, we should be kneeling until the blessed sacrament is reserved once again and the tabernacle is closed. So that is what is supposed to be done. Now, sometimes, and you know in the church, like in those, the pews on the very end, there are no kneelers in front of you because there's no pew in front of you. And I'll see sometimes people, I'm not picking on any of you here now, but I'll see sometimes people who sit there not kneel because they are thinking, well, there's no kneeler. Uh, there's a floor. You've got knees. It's not made of water. It will hold you up. You don't need a kneeler to kneel. That's just a benefit. It makes it easier. There is no excuse if you have working knees why you are not kneeling. It is disrespectful to our Lord. It is disobedient to the church. So please kneel for God's sake. Literally, God's sake, kneel. You know. So again, ideally, all things being equal, you should be kneeling until the blessed sacrament is reserved in the tabernacle. Another thing I always remind the children for First Holy Communion is after you receive communion and say your prayer, should you just kneel there in the pew and then people watch everyone else receive communion? No, close your eyes. Think about the fact that God is actually dwelling within you sacramentally at that moment. Spend a few extra minutes. What you have to do sometimes is mute your senses so that you can focus in prayer. Closing your eyes is one of the easiest ways to do this. If you really want to pray, stop looking around you, right? And, and yes, you may hear something or somebody may bump you. Just ignore it. You know, yes, parents, if you have kids, you can't do that. You know, you've got to deal with those kind of things. But other than that, we, we can always do better to keep our focus in prayer and on the Lord. There was one more thing that wasn't on the list I wanted to talk about. So uh, I know this is a, a strong tradition with, with Mexicans. So I'm not picking on the Mexicans. Um, but many others do it as well. And that's after making the sign of the cross, they'll kiss their thumb. Now, I've asked young Mexicans oftentimes, why do you do that? And they're like, I don't know, my grandmother always did it. Well, the tradition is they would actually make a sign of the cross with their thumb, and they're kissing the cross symbolically, which is a nice little tradition. Now, it's a Mexican tradition. It's not a church tradition. Knock yourself out. If you want to do it, go ahead and do it, right? You know, no big deal. But please don't teach other people to do it, especially at Mass. Now, I forbid my altar servers from doing it. Why? Because when they're serving, they're representing the strict tradition and teachings of the church. They're not up here to show their own piety, their own devotions and preferences. So officially, they can do it on their own or at home. So you have far more license devotionally when you're praying on your own. But when you're praying in common with others, 
it's always best to follow the traditions, to seek conformity with the body of Christ. That's the goal and that's the aim. And that's why I say to you, you know, if, if any of you Anglos attend a mass in another language, like we have a mass at noon in, in Spanish, when you're there, if you don't speak Spanish, please don't pray English out loud. It just disrupts everybody. Our Father who art in heaven and everybody else is speaking in Spanish. Right? That doesn't make any sense. Right? That's disrespectful. If you don't know the language, be quiet. Just pray quietly to yourself. But it goes the reverse. If you don't know English and you're coming to an English mass, please don't pray loudly in Spanish. It doesn't make any sense. It's like me going to Germany, and because I don't know German, I just scream the English Our Father while they're all praying in German. That's just disrespectful, and it shows a lack of unity. Ideally, you know, you can't always, but try to know the language of the Mass that you attend. But if not, at least pray quietly so as not to disrupt the unity of the body. Right? That, is, that is the mindset that we should have. Again, it's not about me. It's about Christ and his church. And I want to remain a part of that body, so I need to conform to it. So please keep that into consideration. And also with, um, I guess, a good way to, to summarize a, a lot of these details, a lot of these issues is this. There's a very famous quote from St. Augustine, and it's one that the church continually uses, even in this day and age, and it's something that all of you, it's one of those quotes you should have memorized. Okay, it's that good. St. Augustine said, says, I should say, that in essentials, unity, in essentials, unity, meaning if something is essential, you should be united. You should all be doing it. And that's what the church tells us. When the church says, do it this way, that's an essential. So in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. Meaning if it's not necessary, go ahead, have your own expressions, be different, that's fine. So in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, diversity, and in all things, charity. In all things, charity. Meaning regardless of the circumstances, act with love. That, that's this beautiful quote that summarizes how we should strive to act at any given moment. In essential issues, be united with others. In non-essentials, celebrate diversity. But in all things, be charitable. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.